Welcome to the Spot Check. Join your resident occupational and speech therapists, Amelia and Heather, as they dive in and get real with patients and clinicians about living with chronic disease. Hey, good morning, Heather. How are you? Hey, Amelia. I am fantastic. How are you? I am doing great, and I'm very excited because today we are recording our first ever podcast session. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the Spot Check. Welcome to the Spot Check podcast. And this is your host, Amelia and Heather. So today we thought about just doing a little bit of introduction about our background, why we want to do this, why you should listen to us. Just kidding. But also just to give you a little background about us and what is the heart behind the Spot Check podcast. So I'm going to let my co-host Heather start with her background before I do. Thank you, Amelia. So my name is Heather and I'm a medical speech language pathologist. I have been practicing for over 16 years. I have always worked with adults, dabbled a little bit with infants early in my career. Oh, I didn't know that. In the, yeah, yeah, I was in the, you mm -hmm. didn't know that? Yeah, I was in the NICU for a little oh. while, first couple of years, uh, University of Tennessee. I have worked my whole career with adults with traumatic brain injury, stroke, progressive neurological diseases, and then most recently, head and neck cancer. The last five years or so, that has been kind of my driving passion, and I've done a lot more research into it myself. I have presented on that topic and other topics as well, but I really delved into this area of head and neck cancer and expanded my horizons. I have worked in acute care, inpatient rehab, and outpatient. I have done supervision. And really what it does for me is I love patient care. I love patient advocacy, but I really love seeing what can I give them as a whole person? What can I do to help them contribute back to their own personal lives, back to society, not just the disorder or what was kind of broken when they had a stroke or a brain injury. So I've always been known as a neuro nerd, a speech language nerd, but very passionate and enthusiastic about what I do and about my field. So that's a little bit about me. Amelia, tell us about you. Yes. Heather is, we kind of joke about it privately, but she is a secretly occupational therapist inside and speech therapist on the outside. Occupational therapy is all about treating the whole person, not just the parts, not just the diagnosis, but the person inside. You know, we know who they are as a mother or as a wife or as a practitioner or as a, or as a daughter, as a son, as a husband. So that's who we look at when we're treating someone. So my background is an occupational therapist. I graduated from USC, go Trojan, in 2010 with my occupational therapy doctorate. And then since then, I've been practicing mainly in medical practices. So I was working acute care hospital in Dallas for about two years, and then I moved to Houston and have been working in an outpatient neuro facility for the last eight years. Initially, my primary interest was treating um, neurodiagnosis, so I got certified in neuroEFRA. It's a really great certification. But then the company decided to open their first lymphedema program in 2013, no, 2012, December. And I got certified in lymphedema in 2013. So since then, I have been treating a lot of patients with diagnoses such as breast cancer, head and neck cancer, and other non-cancer-related lymphedema. So my background with as an OT has always like been wanting to help other people, especially in my own journey. Uh, my dad had a stroke in 1999. I was actually in the car when that happened. I was 14 years old or something like that. Oh, wow. I didn't realize and that. It was, yeah. And it was just really crazy because I've seen all the signs. Like she starts stuttering. He couldn't speak. He lost movement on, on the left side. And 
I was in shock when that happened. And then, of course, being Chinese Indonesian, we didn't take my dad to the urgent care right away. We took him to a traditional medicinal doctor. What? Yes. So it wasn't until that night when my dad was taken to the hospital. And he was in the hospital for, I think, over 40 days at least. Being in a coma. So scary. And, yep. and then after that, I don't think he'd ever get proper inpatient rehab because in 1999, that wasn't a thing. In Indonesia, now we have more rehabilitation, but definitely not at that time. So unfortunately, he actually passed away in 2005. But I think that is one of the driving reasons why I never actually think about this. But in 2006, I joined a research lab as a psychology student studying the effect of dunking patients' feet in cold water on their P wave. And then watching those patients go, and I just realized it's not enough. Like It's not enough for me just to watch and research the symptoms but actually want to do something to make a difference. And that's how I got to occupational therapy. I think it's been my driving force ever since. I would like to see my patient have better chance because my dad didn't have it. So there you go. That's my story of Fenoti. Oh, thank you for sharing that story with us, Amelia. I know some of that, but not all of that. That's very interesting. It's kind of funny as you're talking, sometimes things that you never realize just, just comes up. So Yep, I never put that together. Oh, that's why I switched from psychology to occupational therapy. My dad passed away that spring, and then I joined the research lab in the fall. How interesting. Well, we, the community at large, should give a big round of thanks to you for being an occupational therapist, because you have a wealth of knowledge, and you... The level of care that Amelia gives to her patients, y'all, y'all just don't know. She goes the extra mile all the time. She's always researching, bringing out new, you guys don't know this about Amelia yet, but you will. She's a pioneer and she's always looking at new gadgets and tools and biotech and body, like hacking, hacking to get new results and better results for her patients. She is a pioneer in the world of OT and She's amazing. I'm, I'm just I'm a little bit of a fangirl. Let me just tell you. <laughs> That's it's so true. funny. Because I'm also a fangirl of Heather, just so you know, guys. Um, an amazing speech pathologist. You always have patients. I mean, the stories that patients tell about Heather is that, like, I've been a, a patient for this many years, but nobody has ever teach me how to do it. I think the last story that I've heard from her was this girl who's been on a trach for a long time, and she has not spoken her name in over five years. And then... For yeah. the first time, Heather taught her how to use her own sound to say something that sounds like her name, which was very exciting. So I think I can jump in now to the reason why we want to start the podcast, because we see that there is the human factor of having a chronic disease, right? And everything that we talk about so far, cancer, brain injury, CVA, spinal cord injury, all of those diagnoses are chronic diseases. I mean, initially it happens as a trauma, but then it's not something that goes away. So that's the human side of having a chronic disease that we want to highlight from both the professional angle and also from the patient angle. I, I totally agree. I, th I think people on their journey get stuck in a diagnosis and they get labeled this diagnosis. And that is who, to a lot of people, who they become. They no longer become Heather. They no longer become Amelia. They no longer become Lyle, who was my father, who had white matter degenerate. So he had a progressive neurological disease. And I'll share his story at some point, but that's kind of a driving factor for me and was an aha moment for me as well. When we kind of do this therapy with these patients and it's all well and fine in the doctor's office, in the therapy office or the gym. Okay, we're going to give you your exercises. We're going to give you your home education program. 
go home and do this. But after that course of 12 weeks, six months, whatever it is, let's face it, we know they're not fixed. We know they're not fixed from two hours a week for 12 weeks. But what do we do for a follow-up? And what do we do to look at that whole person holistically, mentally, emotionally, physically? What are we doing to help heal and help restore and actually give them those tools outside of our clinic? And when my dad was going everything that he was, and I would call home because I've always lived in a different state. So I'd call home and I'd say, hey, what's going on with dad with his therapy? And they would say, oh, well, they've given him some worksheets to work on his speech, which was very dysarthric and slurred. And they've given him some worksheets to work on his swallowing, which I knew he was aspirating at the time. And my head would explode because I knew a worksheet was not going to help him communicate that he needed pain medication or that he needed to go to the bathroom or to help him prevent from aspirating. Right. But my family didn't understand that because they don't have the background we do. So I just think about that and I think about our, our people that we're serving and those people that we have made this kind of promise to do no harm to. And is that harmful that we're doing this to people? I mean, I feel like it raises a question. And where does our duty as these health professionals lie to serve the population we see? And is it just enough to just give a worksheet and say, okay, good luck, there you go? Where does that duty lie? Right. I think for the first time I make this connection to that both you and me, Heather, we have the background of being the family member of somebody who has a long-term chronic disease. And actually, we both have suffered our losses. So I think there's a level of compassion that you bring to every session that you have because it is easier, right, just to give a worksheet to a patient because we feel like, okay, we're done. That is our duty. We give them something that they need to do at home. However, I think I would like to challenge you to take it a step further and think about that worksheet that you just gave to your patient. Is your patient actually going to do the worksheet? Is it going to be meaningful to them? And is it something that they need to help them communicate their needs? Just like what Heather said. I think that is a challenge because we can give them the best evidence-based worksheet possible. But if it's not meaningful to them and if it's not something that they will do, then it will just remain a decoration or something that they will lose in the car on their way home. Because I don't know how many times we ask our patient in the clinic, do you have a homework? They all say, no, I don't remember. Or, oh, yeah, somebody gave me something, but I lost the papers. And I mean, yes, mm -hmm. we can blame it that the patient has memory issue, they have dementia, whatever. But at the same time, we know that if it's something that is meaningful, they will at least remember one thing. So that gets back to the saliency point of neuroplasticity, which is research-based, evidence-based practice. Saliency matters. It does. Some people may not know what saliency really means. Can you explain a little bit more? Ah, so saliency, what matters to the patient matters to the patient. So what matters to me doesn't really mean anything. So if I want to get a worksheet on filling in the blanks of Heather's favorite color is blank. Heather prefers this animal over this animal. Who cares? Who cares? No one cares but me. But if I'm going to decide I want to give a worksheet for Amelia to work on at home, I'm going to create it and customize it and make it relevant and personal to Amelia, right? Because then she's going to care. It's going to be meaningful. So if I said something in that worksheet about Amelia is afraid of this type of animal or doesn't like this type of animal or Dog. whatever. <laughs> Or Amelia would prefer to eat at a interesting one of a kind type of restaurant or a chain kind of restaurant. It would be 
interesting restaurant. Yes, yeah. that is correct. Yes. Amelia likes, and I'll always go with Amelia's picks for restaurants. She has the best restaurant picks, but it's meaningful. It's purposeful. It has saliency and relevancy to her, not to me, not to 2,000 copies that were sold of a book. No, it's customized. It's relevant. It's salient because then it's personal. We all want to have something personalized and that's what matters. That's what helps because that's what gets neuroplasticity started. That is really amazing. I don't think I've ever heard that explained that way. In the neuro rehab world, what is really being emphasized is the repetition, right? Repetition matters, which is true. But I think meaningful repetition matters more. Absolutely. Oh, come into one of my sessions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. So that's the reason why we want to start this podcast here, because we want to create conversation with healthcare professionals, with people who actually have watched the firsthand impact of these type of diseases. I see a lot of women who have had breast cancer and who's going through breast cancer treatment. And one of the things that they tell me a lot is that the expectation from their family member or from their friends that now that they have their breast cancer treated and they're free of cancer, that they should be back to the way they were before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the things that a lot of people miss if you've never been through cancer is that nothing is the same. If somebody go through surgery, they have scar tissues, they have a loss of breast sometimes, you know, the very thing that define who they are. And if somebody goes through radiation, radiation kills cancer cells. Yes, that's great. But it also changes the composition of your tissue. So your your muscle becomes more tight and it becomes more fibrotic. And that doesn't really change overnight. I think most of them are actually long lasting. And then somebody been through chemotherapy, they may have some lasting chemo brain, they may have neuropathy. And not to mention that breast cancer are diagnosed younger and younger. My youngest patient that I've ever seen in the clinic, she was 27 years old at that time. If the, the cancer is hormone driven, these patients, these women will be given anti-hormone pills that will cause them to be having menopause early. Nobody really talks about that. Even in the rehab world, I feel like just the menopause effect, like the hot flashes, the mood changes, the weight, all the hormonal changes surrounding menopause that usually happens when they're 50 or 60, but now happens at the age of 30 or 40. So all of the things really change a person's life, their ability to perform their role. I mean, some of my patients going through cancer treatment, they're still in their 30s and 40s. They have three kids. They work full time. They have a husband. I mean, and they go through cancer treatment. So anyway, that's why we want to kind of create that conversation. Well, Amelia brings up very significant points with breast cancer and how challenging it is. And then to that, from a speech pathology perspective, a cognitive perspective, not only with the chemo brain, actually it's part of chemo. I think a lot of patients don't realize because they kind of try to downplay the symptoms or their doctor doesn't tell them short-term memory loss, word finding issues. So that's part of verbal memory issues. And they don't realize what is actually going on. The patient doesn't and their healthcare provider doesn't really notice. They don't bring it up to the doctor. Family notices it. Patients get embarrassed. They try to hide it. They might notice some poor performance. They're not remembering conversations as well with their friends. They're forgetting things at home. And that all goes because it's part of the chemo. And then there's actually, there is some research out there. I haven't looked at it recently, but there was some research floating around that was suggesting that some possible inflammatory changes in the brain may actually be first signs of the breast cancer before the breast cancer shows up. Oh, wow. So you could have some cognitive decline 
and some difficulties with word finding, short-term memory, attention before the breast cancer even makes an appearance. So that was a couple of years ago. Again, I haven't looked in a, in a little while, but I will look closer at that for you. But all that to say, speech therapy can really help with that if the, your therapist knows what to look for, what they're doing with that. And then if you're going to occupational therapy for the lymphedema management, um, if you're talking with your doctor and you notice these things or you have a loved one going through breast cancer and you notice they're forgetting things, that's a real thing that people can help them, but it's not talked about a lot. Right, for sure. Spot check. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think that's the thing. There are so many things that are going on when somebody is going through a cancer diagnosis that is almost traumatic, right? Because I mean, if you think about going to a doctor and then you were told that you have the C word, I mean, that we call it the C word around here just because, you know, it's it's such a trauma word when somebody is diagnosed with cancer. That's all you can hear in that moment, you know? So I just feel like there is a level of unrealistic expectation that people have in terms of cancer because it is so quote unquote common. Like there's race against cancer all the time everywhere. So people don't realize the significance of that word and the lasting impact of that diagnosis. So I often tell my patient that what you've been through is actually something that's called trauma. It may not look like Mm -hmm. a trauma that people talk about, but it is a level of trauma to your body and to your psyche. Losing a breast or losing your tongue, that is a big change and that is traumatic to your body, to your spirit and your soul at the same time. You're having to reformulate who you are as a person. Yes, absolutely. You're, you're, you're having to redefine that, I think. And I hear that a lot. Andy. Yes. And I think that goes with any chronic diseases, not just cancer, right? At our facility, we see patients who after a major diagnosis, right? Like Parkinsonism or CVA or spinal cord injury. But previous to that diagnosis, they were very high performing. So we see lawyers, we see accountants, we see CEOs, we see engineers, a lot of engineers. A lot of engineers. (laughs) I think there needs to be research about that. But I mean, we see people who are very smart, very high performing, and then they go through this diagnosis that changed completely who they are as a person. And that is a very difficult thing to comprehend. I have a patient that I saw recently and he told me, I used to be able to go to the gym two to three hours a day. And he's in his 70s. He had a stroke recently. And since then, he's like, I just am so fatigued all the time and I can't function the way I used to. And I think that's a really hard thing to swallow for a man that age who used to perform at such a high level of like physical performance. To realize right. that now he had a stroke and his walk is not the same. His arm is not the same. His energy level is not the same. And he has to live with that. So I have to teach him energy conservation strategies and techniques, but his energy being a certain quantity every day. And once it's gone, it's gone. Was he receptive to that? Was he receptive to learning or did he have a difficult time acknowledging and accepting that? It takes him about four or five weeks before he actually starts listening to me because I told him from day one and then he keeps just going back to, but I need to take 10,000 steps a day. I don't even (laughs) take 10,000 steps a day. And then I reduce it to, okay, what about 5,000 steps? I was telling him that when you go to therapy, because he has both physical therapy and occupational therapy, do not try to get that 5,000 steps before you go to therapy, because then you won't have anything for us. So it takes him another two weeks to actually start adopting some of the resources and the advice that I gave him. So I think that is a part of our journey as a healthcare professional is knowing that they need to be ready to make those changes for them to adopt the advice that you gave them. Because until they are ready to admit that they need to change, it's just going to be 
another broken record that goes through one ear and goes out the other ear. You just read my mind. I was going to ask you what your advice was or what your perception was of how many people do you think are in that situation out there that aren't quite at that that place of, of readiness to change? Because I often think about the patients that come and see us in the outpatient clinic more often than not, they are dedicated and they are wanting to make a change. And I always admire their tenacity because, man, it is like raining and flooding and there are diehards that are there at 7 a.m. and they want to come for therapy. And I'm like, why, yeah, why are you here? Why are you here? Come on. We all need a boat to get home. But then I think about the large number of people at home who really need therapy, who for one reason or another are motivated. And, and I really, I, I think about my dad a lot because physical therapy would have done him wonders, but he spent years sitting in his backyard in a lawn chair, essentially talking to me on the phone saying, I can't do the things I used to do. And he was super depressed about it. No amount of me trying to like coach him, give him positivity with get him up to go do it. And it broke my heart because I knew what was happening, but because he was unsteady, he couldn't walk very well because he fell a lot. And when he fell, it was hard for him to get back up. So he would just sit. And I think about how many, how many people are out they're like that. And then what can we do to better encourage them that there's help, there's hope out there? How do we do that? And I don't know if that's a, there's an answer to that, but how do we do that? I know. That? I, I really don't think there's an answer to that. But I think there's a level of mental changes and depression that sets in with a diagnosis of chronic disease and realizing that you cannot do the things that you have to do. Don't shoot me for this. But I think men have a harder time admitting to that And it is that mentality that men don't cry and men don't have emotion and you just grind it through. But I mean, Mm -hmm. I think your dad definitely did need a psychologist or a counselor to go through some of that depression that he went through, able to actually move forward and push forward so he can actually receive physical therapy. But I think there is a stigma about mental health that people don't want to address their mental health. I think as we destigmatize the need for mental health services as we provide more education to our younger generation that, hey, taking care of your mental health is part of your self-care. It's not saying that you're, quote unquote, a crazy person who needs to go to a loony bin. I mean, that's what people throw around all the time, right? And they make light Mm -hmm. of the situation that the people who actually need mental health services are not loonies, quote unquote. I had a mental health rotation um, in my OT school for three months and my CI told me, Amelia, the only difference between you and the people that you are serving is that you are still coping. That's why you're still where you're at. The people who are here in the hospital, they cannot cope anymore and they use other strategies to cope that are not functional. That is a wise statement. Yes. And that really strikes me because, you know, I've had moments where I feel depressed, where I feel hopeless, but I can still use my coping strategy. Very good insight. So that brings me to an interesting question. When you see some of our patients, our clients going through some stuff, how frequently do you think the question comes up? How are you doing mentally? How are you coping? Do you want to talk to a social worker? Do you want to talk to somebody? And I I asked this because I was just having a conversation with someone the other day, a patient who's younger and had a stroke and it's going through a lot with a couple young kids. And we have that conversation because I think speech pathologists and occupational therapists tend to double as psychologists a lot. But I tend to incorporate that a lot in my sessions. But I'm curious, what do you think? How, how frequently do you think that question gets asked? I probably will say that that are not addressed very much because most people don't feel that it's their role to talk about that type of thing. 
my sessions are mostly very psychosocial because I, you know, like I do a lot of manual work on my patients. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm asking how they are, like what's going on in their life. And before you know it, I mean, Heather have the same experience. And before you know it, patients start telling me about trauma that happened when they were in their 20s years old, like this divorce happened or this trauma happened. And I was like, wow, have you ever talked to a therapist about that? And most of the answers that I've heard from people are no, because they don't no. consider that as something that is traumatic or something that need to be addressed. Because as a third person, I can see how those events that they're sh- sharing with me cause the belief system and cause some of the pattern of emotional distress that they're experiencing right now. But as a person mm-hmm. experiencing it, they can't see it. However, I also know that mental health services are not as accessible to some people and cost right. a lot of money. I have a patient who struggle with the copay of that. And, you know, so that's why I usually suggest, especially for the patients with cancer, to at least talk to a social worker or the to the nurse navigator for some support or to go to a support group to some level because those are the freebies. But many people don't want to go to support group for many reasons. For patients with cancer, there's the can care, there's, you know, like other types of services that they can get. So I know we veered a little off where we were headed, but I, I'm really interested in this topic. Mm-hmm. As therapists, do you think that is um, within our scope? Do you think that's part of our role is to ask those questions, dig around a little bit, or if that's information is offered to be of a service of, of that type, like psychosocial? Absolutely. I feel like especially if the patient offer those information, I mean, if they shut down it, they shut down the question very quickly, I would say they're mm-hmm. not ready and don't push them. But I mean, if they offer those information to us, that means they're actually secretly or unknowingly looking for help. And I think it's up to us as a healthcare professional to show them that, hey, this is where you can find help. I 100% agree. And I agree for many reasons. I think it establishes your patient-clinician relationship and that trust that you have with each other. Additionally, I think that it helps you as a therapist figure out where they are in the scheme of or in their mindset of therapy and how much they are going to buy into therapy, where you need to go as a therapist of getting them to buy in or how you need to present different ideas of therapy to them. And there's different therapy, there's different readiness skills available out there that you can use Mm -hmm. to judge your patient's mentality of readiness and then have that conversation. And if you have a good idea emotionally and mentally where your patient's at, you can meet them halfway. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of times therapists tending to just kind of treat every patient the same way. And it's like, I'm here to give you therapy and you're going to be ready for Mm -hmm. it. And if you're not, well, then it's your fault. And I tend to disagree with that. Right. But I don't really fault a therapist a whole lot the first few times, but I feel as a therapist is learning and the more years they have, they need to kind of start educating themselves of this is where we need to be. And we're working with people who have trauma who have these significant changes in their life, changes in caregiver burdens, in caregiver roles, significant changes usually in income, um, and are worrying what's going to happen from them day to day. How are they going to pay their bills? And then we have therapists saying, well, you need this equipment, this equipment, this house renovation. You have this many medications now that you used to not have. It's this huge burden, and we need to know that, and we need to adapt to that and meet them halfway. So we need to know their readiness, what is happening with them. Absolutely. I never consider using a scale for my patient. So that is a great idea. If they have good insight to fill out the questionnaire, of course, 
And if they're not ready, I tell them that, hey, here's my card. You can find me if you have any question, because that is my goal for every single encounter is that they may not follow everything that I tell them to do, especially in lymphedema care, but they know that, hey, this is where you can find help and support when something actually happens. Then I think I met my goal as a therapist, because my goal is not for them to do everything that I tell them to do. You know, that cannot never be my goal because it will never happen. But my goal is to provide them with what I have and hopefully meet them halfway. Kind of like what you said, Heather, meet them halfway to where I'm just going to use lymphedema as an example. Maybe you don't want to use your compression every day yet. That's fine. Just make sure you use it when you're doing A, B, and C. Or maybe you can't do your uh, manual lymphatic drainage every day because you have three kids and you have to take care of your kids and put them to bed and all that stuff. Okay, why don't you do it at least three or four times a week when you do the most work? So you kind of have to give them something that is attainable, measurable, something they can do instead of giving them, oh, you have to do it every day for the rest of your life. That sounds very depressing. It does. So I think it will be interesting to try using more of those scales with the patient so the therapist can actually see that, hey, my patient is not actually ready for change. And maybe I don't have to give them 100 home exercise program to do, but I can give them one or two that they can do every day. I mean, that's my frustration with HEP is that people give like 10 to 20. I know the patient will only do two or three. You know, it's funny you say that. I had a great conversation with a patient yesterday who has MS. So his insight's very good. He's a younger guy. He's great. So he said to me, okay, I'm going to be honest with you. People give me all these exercises all the time. And when they give them to me, I'm really great about doing them like the first week or two. And then they give me more. And I don't know what the hell to do with all these exercises. Am I supposed to spend two hours a day doing 30 different exercises? Like, I don't know what to do. So I don't do any of them. And I said, you know what, I appreciate that honesty. And I wouldn't do them either. I'm the same way. So let's look at what you have. And let's prioritize. First of all, which ones do you like doing? Which ones do you feel are giving you the most benefit? Like, what can you really feel working Mm -hmm. for you? So we went through them and we broke them all down and isolated them to four. Four that he can do within like maybe 20 minutes. And then I know he's going to do. And I know we'll give him the best bang for his buck, right? He can knock them out and they'll help him the most. And I let him choose, but I kind of subtly guided him Mm -hmm. (laughs) to what I thought were the best. So we picked him out. He'll do them. We got rid of the rest. So we have to think about what we're doing. Intentionally and why. But I was very appreciative that he had that insight to bring that because it's valid. It's so valid. And you brought up a really great point. He has the insight. I'm going to tell you that Mm -hmm. 50 to 70% of our patients don't have the insight. So it is up to us, a therapist, to actually give them, like kind of bringing back to what you were saying earlier, the salient exercises, give them something that is small enough for you to comprehend. Because as a person who tried to exercise three to four times a week, I cannot process 100 (laughs) exercises. I was just like, okay, just tell me what to do. You know, that's what my patients tell me all the time. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Well, and most of the time they're too polite. They're not going to tell you, even if they do know. They're too polite. And they actually want you to tell them what to do. Exactly. 
But if you give them 10, 20 exercises without telling them, okay, I want you to do this one for five minutes, this one for five minutes, this one for five minutes, they get overwhelmed because they have 10 papers for OT, 10 papers for PT, and then 10 papers for speech. And they're like, do I, am I supposed to spend like five, six hours each day to do this exercise? Ideally, I mean, somebody said it to me once, the answer is yes, because they used to work eight hours a day. <laughs> However, oh, are you I, yeah, I'm not kidding you. But I used to believe that too. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But then at the same time, if you process that, right? I mean, I just went through a vacation for five days and I have all these great big plans about all the things I need to do. How much time do I spend on those things? Maybe 10% of my time. I think that's a part of being patient advocate is to see what they need and give them exactly what they need rather than giving them what we think they need. I agree. Totally agree. And oftentimes those can be a wide gap in thinking. Yes. So I guess in closing, we have talked a lot about the day-to-day things that we encounter with patients. And that's something that is the heart of our podcast. We don't want to just talk about the research and the theories and how things should work, but how those things should line up with reality, right? And that's why we are going to interview a woman who has gone through breast cancer treatment, but she's also a healthcare professional. So I think it will be interesting to hear her perspective of her journey in this process of recovery and dealing with a chronic disease such as cancer. And then we also have some people lined up to talk about head and neck cancer, the treatment, and all the things. Yes, and we are very excited to be able to talk with everyone, get people's different perspectives about if you agree with us, disagree with us, bring it on. We want to hear about that. And then just let's have a discussion about how we can better serve people with chronic diseases, hear about their experiences as well as being more than just a label, being more than just a diagnosis and what that experience is, how can we better meet their needs, what their recommendations are, and just hear their stories, and then hear from people in the field, the professionals that treat these different chronic diseases. And you get to hear uh, some of our fun antics along the way and tips and tricks we've learned in, gosh, over 26 years of experience. Yep. Well, thank you for tuning in today and we'll see you next time on the next episode on The Spot Check. Spot check. There you go. <laughs> Please subscribe to The Spot Check from your provider of choice. Show notes and links can be found at thespotcheckpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Amelia is the lymph therapist and Heather is the medical SLP. 